Hello. Welcome to the Popcorn Tennis Podcast, returning to you for episode two. And it's a big topic. We don't shy away from these at Popcorn, if you've watched, read any of our articles before. Um, and I want to introduce uh, our co-hosts and guests this week. So I'm Nick Carter. Um, I'm with Shahari Ravi. Shahari, how are you doing? I'm good, Nick. How are you? Oh, I'm very well, thanks. I'm very well. Um, and also with um, one of the uh, editors of Popcorn Tennis site, Owen Lewis. Owen, how are you today? Uh, I'm awesome. I'm really excited for this topic. And uh, after we finish up here, I get to go play tennis. So it's it's an awesome day. Uh, how competitive is it going to be? Uh, depends on who I play. Uh, hoping to pick on a weakling today so that, uh, so that I can get a win. <laughs> We also have a uh, popcorn writer and a uh, podcast contributor, um, Hanya Fetali. Hanya, how are you doing? Um, good, thank you. How are you, how are you guys doing today? I think we're all good. We're all good. Right, well, let's dive in to the big topic of the rivalry between 20-plus time Grand Slam champions uh, Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic. Hopefully, no one's offended by the order. That's literally the first the order that came into my head. Um, Djokovic and Nadal currently the main leaders in the race for uh, most majors won by a male player. Twenty twenty three will be interesting to see if they can add to that. Um, but I want let's talk a bit about what makes these players individually so great before we dive into what makes their rivalry so incredible. Um, so we'll start with, you know what, since I said Nadal first, let's talk about Djokovic first. Shahiri, big Djokovic fan. Let's, let's let you take the floor with this one. Where do I even begin? So, uh, of course, 21-time major champion, right? Uh, currently number two all-time uh, in the men's uh, Grand Slam race, just behind, of course, his biggest rival, Rafael Nadal. It's an interesting story about Novak because uh, if you would roll back to 2010, to the end of 2010, exactly 12 years ago, if you were to look at the tally, it was 16 majors for Roger, nine for Rafael Nadal, who, mind you, had just completed the surface slam and the career slam. And he was, of course, the youngest men's player to do the career slam at 24 years of age. So, of course, he already had pretty much a case to be the GOAT at that time, uh, arguably, of course. And he had Novak Djokovic at one Grand Slam. And, of course, a few Masters titles to his name, but had not won a Grand Slam for more than a couple of years. And, of course, we were all uh, beginning to embrace the fact that maybe he's uh, quite a flashy player and not really uh, not really meant to be as consistent and as dominant as his big three counterparts, Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. But then comes 2011, when he just completely takes the tennis world by storm for an entire decade. You could say he dominated the entire decade by winning uh, around 15 Grand Slams from 2011 all the way to 2019, which is pretty amazing to think about considering where he began and how how close he started to inch towards Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. Uh, and 
you know, just if you were to look at the kind of player he was perceived to be before that, uh, he was a guy who I would say was uh, didn't have the best temperament uh, at the time, uh, would be very susceptible to uh, extreme weather conditions or extreme, for, what would be extreme for him, you would say. A lot of mid-match retirements. And that, of course, didn't earn him a really good name in the locker room as well, as well as amongst fans. And then you look at him transform into this physical beast. Even at the age of 35, it is so impossible to beat him at, in a best of five match. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that in itself could probably be uh, an episode altogether on how uh, Novak just rose from what he was back in 20, until 2010 to now. But for me, as someone who's been a fan since 2007, to see this complete transformation and to see the level of reliability he brings to the big matches, almost always the favorite to win them almost always the favorite to win a Grand Slam for the longest time right now. Uh, I think it's just pretty remarkable to see how he just uh, toppled the tennis world and, you know, put, made a name for himself. And one could say he's on, he's on, he's on well on his way to uh, just uh, leading every single uh, important uh, statistic, so to speak. Uh, the only uh, the only one that he lags behind in is the Grand Slam tally, but he pretty much has the most year and number one finishes. He has the most uh, weeks at the world number one spot. Uh, he has the most Masters titles. He's won every Masters title multiple times when no other men's player has won even all of them once. So I think it's pretty remarkable how complete he is as a player, not only achievements-wise, but on court. Uh, and how how complete his game is. And yeah, I, I could go on, but that I think hopefully summarizes and encapsulates pretty well uh, how how great Novak Djokovic is, and especially considering where he was um, a decade ago. Player um, who um, has, you're right, dominated for, did dominate the 2010s. I mean, they were very much about whether I, he could be beaten and how often. Um, but obviously, someone who's always been in the mix in for two decades now, the 2000s and the 2010s, and now even the 2020s, uh, is Rafael Nadal, who probably hit the ground running a little bit quicker than Novak Djokovic, at least by comparison, if we're going to go down that route. Um, Owen, talk to us a little bit about, I know you're not necessarily a Nadal fan the same way that Shahiri is a Djokovic fan, um, but talk to us a little bit about the greatness of Rafael Nadal. Yeah, gladly. I, I mean, I think a good place to start is, Nick, you said he hit the ground running. Um, he won Roland Garros the first time he played it in 2005, and then he didn't lose a match there until 2009. And then he won the title again this year. Um, so the longevity is incredible. Um, the dominance on clay is incredible. I think a lot of people think of resilience when they think of Nadal. And I think that manifests itself in a few different ways. Um, I think he was, um, you know, like Djokovic, who's a physical beast, timeline a little bit different. Um, 
but almost from the point when he won his first major, he was playing these five-hour matches, outlasting pretty much everyone. And I think that ended up pushing Djokovic to become kind of the terminator he ended up being. Um, and then they just played these, I mean, we'll get into it, but they would play matches where like they would literally injure each other because they went on for so long. Um, you know, I think Nadal has an incredible game. I think he took speed to another level in his younger days in a way that's getting a lot of people to compare Alcaraz to him, who has that same kind of speed, I think. Uh, his forehand is incredible. He can hit it from anywhere to anywhere. Um, he's maybe not quite as complete as Djokovic, but he has very few weaknesses. And um, and I think, but for, I think for me, his main legacy is um, his capacity to adjust. I think that when he started playing, he took to clay well, but not the other surfaces. And then he ended up being the youngest male player to, to complete the career slam. Um, he was able to beat Federer on grass, Djokovic on hard court, after kind of matchup difficulties with both of them on those surfaces. Um, he's been injured a billion times and has come back from all of them in all these different ways. And I don't think it ever really seems like he was going to be leading the, the major tally because Federer had such a big lead. And then Djokovic was coming on so strong at the end of 2021. Um, and here you have Nadal at the top of the table right now with 22. Um, yeah, I think his legacy speaks to, I and I hate to use this phrasing because everyone does, but his fight. Um, I like there's yet to be an obstacle that has been able to to fell him. Um, I don't know if anything besides age can do it. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does in the, the next phase of his career. Your article for Popcorn, you know, you, you've covered each of the big three in depth. Um, I'm pretty sure your Nadal article was called The Fighter, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that seems like the best title at the time. Yeah. Um, Hanya, do you, um, what do you think of both these players? Right. The problem is with speaking last is that pretty much everyone covered the points you wanted to talk about. Uh, but I mean, I think... I grew up to appreciate Djokovic lately, very lately. But what I really appreciated about his game is that he's not exactly a court specialist. He's a machine who plays with dominance on every court. And that's something you had to worry about with Nadal and Federer. And he takes grass wins from the grass master, clay win from the clay master, He's a complete player, and which makes him very difficult to play on 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 any surface, really. And that's really what I appreciate most most about Djokovic. Nadal is more or less the clay master. I I know I like. It's hard to argue that, and he's he's the most dominant. It's the most dominant thing in any sport, like ever. And that's might be a bit like overshadowed his performance on other surfaces but I think that's one of his, of his greatest strengths I couldn't think of a better summary of than you just given Hanya I agree I think I think both players are pretty complete but Djokovic definitely known as someone who executes everything almost everything to perfection you may pick slight holes and aspects of his game um, but you can do that with any of the big three. Um, uh, but like when you watch him, he looks like he executes everything through almost technical. And Nadal, the, the ultimate clay specialist, I completely agree with the point that you made though, that I was on um, 
overshadowed his achievement with other surfaces. You, even if you took his Roland Garros titles out, his Grand Slam count is huge still. It, it, um, yeah, he's still like still be top ten all time um, with with that count. Uh, he, I think he's underperformed on grass probably because of the way his game went in the early to mid twenty tens. Um, but um, compared to what he could have done, but um, on a hard court, I think um, the only person that really is a major threat there was uh, Novak Djokovic for a bit. Um, Owen, what do yeah. you think makes um, the combination of Nadal and Djokovic when they play each other so special? That's a great question. Um, I think for me, the main thing is that both of them lack a major weakness. And so when they're rallying from the baseline, there aren't simple tactics involved. It's not as simple as hit to this side of the court. Like, they have to use angles. They're going to use drop shots. They're going to lob. They're going to, like, try to beat each other down through sheer attrition and play these 40-shot rallies. Like, it's not, it's not like a situation with, let's say, like, Benoit Pair. You know you're going to hit to his forehand because that forehand is really shaky. Djokovic and Nadal have nothing resembling that. And so since they're so complete and since they're so physically fit, you just get all these rallies that can't be produced by anyone else. Um, like I think, like the 2011 US Open, they played a couple of these 30-shot rallies that just made no sense whatsoever um, because of how long they went on and how prolonged they were after like five or six shots that should have been winners were already hit. Um, and, and I think on top of that, they're mentally strong. And so they can do these things on pressured points. Um, and I don't really think that was something that was happening in the men's game before that. Like, I think, I think with Federer and Nadal, you got some beautiful points, some amazing matches, but I think on, on big points, each guy kind of knew what he had to do. Like Nadal was going to hit to the backhand, Federer was going to attack as soon as possible, with Djokovic and Nadal, I think it's much more of a slog, but in a great way. Um, yeah, like I, I think just the patterns they're able to create for me is the most special thing. Yeah, I do tend to concur with everything Owen said. And you could argue that, you know, about the Federer-Nadal matchup and the Djokovic and Federer matchup. There are a lot of points that, you know, are sort of, in a way, roller coaster ones. And you could classify them as beautiful because you know there's one guy who's bringing the beauty aspect to it which is Roger Federer of course but then it, Novak and Rafa you describe it as mind-boggling and animalistic there you know sometimes it's, it just defies physics and you know I would like to cite that point from Rome 2018 uh, the one which uh, you, you know is pretty much shared by tennis tv every time Novak and Rafa are you know due to play each other, which Robbie Koenig uh, exclaimed at and said, it's tennis here the gods, right? Uh, it, that was just, I mean, you, you can't explain that kind of test. And, you know, it's also worth mentioning that that was Novak going into that tournament with a 6-6 record. And still the way Nadal brings, you know, uh, tennis that's close to his best out of him, even that kind of a circumstance on a surface that's, Probably not his best. Granted, it's Rome. Probably his uh, best tournament on the surface. But still, uh, a lot of the points that they play, and you could even uh, 
say that about you know the points they played at their last two Roland Garros meetings at the Wimbledon 2018 semifinal, which you you could argue is probably their best Grand Slam match they've ever played, uh, and you know especially the tennis peaking in the third set tiebreaker. So yeah, it's just and the way what what I do want to add is that uh, the shots that you wouldn't tend to see them uh, be really known for with Novak, it's the forehand. It always comes to the four against Nadal, pretty much every time. Like I've, I've seen plenty of these crazy forehand winners on the stretch or even passing shots, or uh, there were a couple of them in the Australian Open 2019 final where he just belted a couple of forehands back to back. Of course, not really a classic that match it was pretty one-sided but uh same with Nadal you don't really see him using the forehand drop shot as often in any other of his matches and when he does against Novak he executes executes it to near perfection uh same same thing you could say about his backhand on the line which funnily that was the shot with which he finished uh the quarterfinal at Roland Garros this year against Novak the backhand on the line winner of course, uh, even in the Australian Open 2012 final, if you see how good Nadal's backhand was and in the Wimbledon 2018 semifinal. So I think in every way possible, they bring the best out of each other. And it's like they squeezed every last drop of sweat out of one another until they're done. And like Owen mentioned at the beginning of the show, almost to a point where they end up injuring themselves. If you recall Madrid 2009, that was sort of the case where Nadal was dead on his feet for the final and he just couldn't move. He was, yeah, he was, he was just flat in that final against Roger Federer after the four hour epic in a best of three against Novak Djokovic. So I think, and the fact that they are capable of doing that, even when they're into their thirties, it's just, it speaks volumes of how amazing this matchup is between two of the best ever players we've ever seen. It's quite interesting. It's quite interesting. Actually, you mentioned that sort of yeah, that visual of them kind of out enduring each other, kind of giving everything they've got in every rally, every point. That's what I think of when I think of these players taking on each other. It's why I always get excited for Djokovic versus Nadal match because I know the intensity, not just the level, but the intensity, and it's, it's going to be out as well. Um, uh, what is interesting is you were talking about to the point of injuring each other. That almost happened less as their careers went on. You got the sense that they had these epics like Madrid 09, like Australia 12, um, where they kind of slowly, gradually over time realised they couldn't keep knocking seven bells out of each other every time they, they met, uh, which is possibly why Wimbledon 2018 is possibly their peak. I need to rewatch it. I recently rewatched the Australian Open 2012 um, match. I, I covered, it, covered it for popcorn. Uh, beginning of January, I'm going to do the same at some point for the Wimbledon map because it's a long time since I've seen it. Um, but I don't have an issue with calling that maybe the best encounter because, um, yeah, they they their games have evolved and even perfected even further in the six years. That not only could they bring that intensity, but they weren't exhausting each other; they were being smarter. Um, and uh, that's that's a dimension that was quite interesting. Um, I, I had a question for for Hanya and Nick. Um, you know, as as Federer fans, we've we've talked a little bit about what makes Djokovic and Nadal so great. 
what they do against each other. Like you two being Federer fans, like what about them aggravated you the most when they would play Federer? Like, I know this is diverging a bit from the Djokovic-Nadal rivalry, but you know, when Federer would play Djokovic or when Federer would play Nadal, like what, what fed you up the most and pissed you off as a Federer fan? Uh, I think it's interesting to get that perspective of it too. Um, I think like for me, what pissed me off the most, like before I started to warm up to Djokovic was his ability to basically beat Federer three times on Wimbledon at his, like at Federer's best. So that was like, wow, like there's no stopping this guy. Like that was the first time I started to, to admire him. Like he doesn't care that everybody's supporting Federer. He doesn't care that everybody wants Federer to win. Um, he doesn't care that he's playing at Federer's like home court. Like he, he's just going to win. He, he doesn't get, care about all of that. So that like his, I might use a word you used to describe Nadal, but I think it's more fit for Djokovic, which is resilience. And that is resilience in its essence because like, like bouncing back from all, all the backlash and, and hate that, he gets from the crowd whenever like he gets close to winning a match against Federer that that that's what really impressed me and annoyed me at the same time yeah I I would agree with with Hanya on a lot of that um like she said like especially after the 2019 Wimbledon final that was where I really kind of started to accept that maybe Novak Djokovic was was the goat because the way he won that match um, I haven't decided yet before anyone jumps on me. I still haven't decided yet. I'm not going to die until they retire. Um, but um, my my think I think the thing about the thing I found annoying is a Federer fan watching him play, watching whenever he played them, win or lose, was the fact that Federer's game didn't blow them away like he did with almost every other opponent. There have been other players over the years that have troubled Federer and irritated some like or Zonga or Burdich, but for very different reasons. Nadal and Djokovic's tenacity and refusal to go away, Federer's aggressive play style was, they were just getting everything back and finding ways of moving him around and getting him off balance. Um, and I think goes to show how, again, the great they were. They met the level, the bar that Federer set uh, and really competed and more often than not, as time went on, beat him. And the reasons for that, now is not the time to go into. Um, but for me, um, I would say it was that. It was Federer was even switching to his uh, volley tactics in the middle of the 2010s. Playing ultra aggressive against these guys wasn't necessarily the way to go. They would they, something needs to be off about them on the other day, or Federer needs to be lights out, brilliant the whole time. Which, as his career progressed, it became harder for him to do as he aged. Um, so I would say that's probably the thing that frustrated me the most in experience might, of watching. Might I just add something that, in case of Federer, like regardless of his consistency, his inability to beat Nadal on clay. That was the, the the thing that annoyed me the most, to be honest. Like you have six times, six chances to do to do that, and you fail every single time. 
that really hurts Federer's case on establishing himself as the greatest of all time, really. I, I, I have an anecdote about this, actually. I, um, you, you all will know that I, I was a Federer fan when I first got into tennis. And uh, I was watching Roland Garros and a graphic came up about um, who had played and won in the finals in previous years. And so many in a row, it was Nadal defeats Federer. And then the year Federer won in 2009, it was Federer defeats Soderling. And I remember thinking like, he didn't get Nadal. Like that was the way it was supposed to happen. Like he should have gotten Nadal that one time. Um, and it and like at the time, I remember it really bothered me that I didn't see that anywhere. Um, and, uh, you know, Srihari, I, I also wanted to get your take on this. Um, as, as a Djokovic fan, when he would play Nadal, um, what, what bothered you the most? What was the, the toughest thing about that? Is that uh, he would just never back down. I mean, this may sound like a cliche at this point, but uh, no, matches, you know, the ones where both of them would bring their best. You would sometimes hope that, okay, you know, maybe there's a bit of a letdown when Nadal has one bad service game or he's just off on the return, just nothing, right? Sometimes he's just, take the Wimbledon 2018 semifinal, for instance. I remember the fourth set. Obviously, the fourth set was the one that the resumption began with on the next day. Novak had break points to break in the first game itself. And I thought, okay, you know, we, we he breaks here and, you know, he holds his own until the end of the match and it's done. No, it doesn't happen. Rafa breaks. And I do remember clearly when he served for the set, there was, he was love 40 down. And again, he just, he, uh, he didn't have any letdown. He was completely dialed in. Every shot that he played, every tactic that he executed, there was, there was just no letdown whatsoever. You would think, okay, you know, maybe... Uh, this one time, especially if you were if you were to talk about those drop shots, like he has to miss at some point. No, he has to drop a little shot at some point for Novak to just come and go for the kill and take the point and take the game. That never happened. And then there's the AO 2012 final, four three love three four love forty down. He had no business uh, holding that game and not only taking into a tiebreaker but winning that tiebreaker as well from 3-5 down novak was 5-3 up on the serve uh but like and of course i have to mention the 2011 us open final not a match that i watched live but i was a little shocked to see that novak actually served for the championships in the third set but then there's that rally at 15 all i think 6-5 in the third where nadal i mean the way you watch him play it's almost like he's the one who's two sets in a breakup and about to serve at the championships like the scoreline and obviously this translates more to Novak's matches because I'm such a huge fan and that I do not want to see that or against any of my favorites right uh it's that the scoreline just doesn't seem to matter for him if you see if you take someone like Djokovic for example you you can definitely guess what the score is based on his body language and what some 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 player some people would call tanking, quote unquote, uh, you could sometimes call that sure. Where he's just swinging freely, doesn't really care about the outcome. He sort of made peace with the fact that he's not going to win this match or the set. But you never see that from Nadal, and that is just you know such a huge, you know testament to what a champion he is. And of course, even in the fourth set of the Roland Garros quarterfinal which Novak, I mean, being as clutch as he is, 
Uh, he should have just served it out, taken us at least to a fifth set. But no, he just he keeps asking he keeps asking questions. He keeps getting that extra ball back, and that just sometimes that just annoys me and makes me wonder why can't he miss for once, right? Why can't he let this slip? And at least at at the very least, let the match extend, right? But he just never allows for anything like that. Which, as a Djokovic fan, especially, I have to just admire, right? Outside of the heat of the moment while watching. Novak and Rafa battle it out at you know the biggest tournaments on the biggest stages. That's just something I both admire and hate at the same time. So that would just annoy me so much. And there's just no breathing room against this guy when you're playing against him. You can never get complacent with the lead. It's not even Novak Djokovic. So that always keeps your heart racing. And I don't like that for sure. Um, and I cannot really say that about any other opponent with all due respect or not many other opponents, I would say. So, yeah, that, that is one thing definitely that would really, uh, you know, get on my last nerves. We've talked a little bit. We've, I think we've mentioned quite a few specific matches. I think it's time we maybe delve into that. Um, we're going to talk about underrated or overlooked matches in a bit, but let's get your guys or our views on uh, sort of the five matches that kind of everyone, or the handful of matches that um, everyone kind of says are sort of the best encounters between Nadal and Djokovic. Um, Madrid 2009, Australia 2012, um, Wimbledon 2018, Roland Garros. Um, I'm going to say 2021. Some people would also say 2013 because that went five sets. Um, 21 seems to be the most legendary of their most recent crashes, the sort of annual Paris meeting they seem to be having at the minute. Um, I guess um, I guess what we've mentioned the Wimbledon 2018 one already as kind of the, the peak for two. Um, <clears throat> what is it about that match that for you guys, I've talked a little bit about it, but for you guys might set it of some of the others. Yeah, I um I, I love this match. It's it's one of my favorites. And I think for me what sets it apart is that it was the first time that they had been at their best, both of them, for an entire encounter. Um that didn't happen with them before. Um and so they would have like they would have really special sets for a long time. Like they'd play these sets that were 90 minutes or they'd have these phases that were incredible, but they would be so intense that then they would both just kind of not have anything left after that. And a lot of their matches kind of ended with a whimper. Um, I remember um, like the 2009 Monte Carlo final, the first three games of the third set went for 41 minutes. Um, and that was insane. But then after Djokovic was gassed and Nadal just ran over him. Um, and so they would play these sets that were amazing, um, but nothing more than that. And Wimbledon 2018, I thought they were both at, you know, 90, 95, 100% the entire time. Um, there were no letdowns. And that was the first time they had ever done that. And so that one was just special to me because I was like, they showed that they can do that finally. Um, and, you know, at the time, still a Federer fan, didn't watch it live. But in retrospect, that match makes me so happy because I think it, 
sort of made everyone take that rivalry a little more seriously and it started to get a bit more of the love that it deserves. Yep, I do agree with that. And I also should mention, uh, you know, about taking the rivalry seriously. That's a very good point because until then, I think what the image of this rivalry for, for a really long time was that ah, they just have a lot of wrong, long rallies and they grind it out. They No one really uh, saw the, I mean, I guess it has to do with the surface as well and how they had to adapt their game to the kind of court they were playing on. But you could see all kinds of skill sets that were displayed by both of them that you wouldn't otherwise see. Sure, when they're playing at Aust- in Australia, they're playing in Paris or even in New York, you would see a lot of long baseline exchanges, long busting ones. And, you know, for us, I mean, obviously for the ones who love the rivalry, it's just that's uh, sort of our dopamine and that's why we would watch that you know this matchup in specific but yeah Wimbledon 2018 and it's also quite fresh on people's memories that's you know another thing where people are you know like Owen said reminded of how good these guys are and how good the the matchup actually can be uh so yeah that would be one and yeah, I should say RG2021 as well. And obviously peaked in that uh, towards the end of the third set. They did have really good rallies towards the end of the first, which almost looked like there was a pretty, pretty glorious plot twist with Rafa being five love up and scrambling uh, on a seventh set point to you know close it out 6-3. But yeah, it, it's, it was really nice to see for me Djokovic bring the tennis that he's capable of on clay rather than just looking flat I would say like how we looked in 2020 and for pretty much the first set and a half of their encounter this year uh, so you know yeah I those are matches not only fresh on people's memories but we could also see it's sort of a reminder as to how good these guys are and why they're as great as they are yeah, I, mean, I thought you made a good point about um, the uh... The matches, often of their matches, they have great individual sets um, or a couple of sets during the match, but it's not that during the whole period. And yeah, um, the 2018 one on that respect, yeah, probably consistently great all the way through. Even their uh, the legendary Australian Open 2012 final. Um, that I mean, On my rewatch, that didn't really get going, going until the end of the fourth. I mean, there were really good points in the second set, actually, to be fair. But it wasn't all the way through. Like that third set, it looked like Djokovic was in control. Um, I think that match has a lot of nostalgia for me because that's the first time I really watched a match between those two and went, oh my word, these two are just going at it and these, the dial's not giving up and they're just keeping on going and they've been going six hours and they're still playing their best tennis deep in the fifth. Um, and I think that's what makes that match kind of significant for me. Um in terms of the nostalgia around it, and also rewatching it, it's a great match in those far, last couple of sets. I do see your point around maybe consistently, but that's the case in all of them. And like um, even the Roland Garros 2021 match that we've mentioned before, where that, that quote only went four sets, I think we need to start maybe respecting it more than we do. Um, but um, like Owen, you've said before, um, that match has the best individual set that those two 
um, have ever played against each other, possibly. Um, I don't know if you still hold that view. You could say that at the time. I don't know whether that's still something. The, the, there are a lot of candidates. I might, I, I might revise that. I think, um, yeah, I think the fourth and the fifth of 2012 Australia were great. I think the third and the fifth of 2018 Wimbledon, I put the third set of the US Open up there. Um, but I, I mean, it, that Roland Garros one deserves to be up there with any of them. It's just a bonkers set. Um, I, I need to go back and revisit it, honestly, because it's been a little bit. Um, I mean, for the first, like, like until they played this year, that point they played in the middle, it was a break point 3-2 on Djokovic's serve. They played a 23-shot rally where Djokovic got back this forehand down the line that no one else would have gotten back and finished the point with a winner. I, I would literally think about that point every day. Um, and that, that happened, I think, for the full year until they played again this year. Um, it was that good. Uh, not sure if that answered your question. <laughs> no, it does. You did. You said you might revise it. You need to rewatch. It will need to rewatch some matches. Um, Hanya, are there any Nadal Djokovic matches that kind of stand out to you um, as you have some good memories of enjoying watching? I know it's a bit cliche, but definitely the 2012 Australian Open final. That's that's up there because I, I think it's one of the top like two or three greatest matches of all time. And also because I got to watch like a six hours final without really caring who wins at the end. So I was just enjoying the tennis. And that was the greatest part about it. Like there was no like emotional investment in the match, but it was like one of the greatest matches. So that was like a, a nice different experience for me. <laughs> Yeah, I felt exactly the same way when I watched it at yeah. the time as well. Um, okay, yeah. Um, match, possibly their greatest best of three matches, Madrid 2009, would that be about right, Trihiri? Yeah, for sure. Uh, considering, I mean, if you look at the elements of any great best of three match, you know, I one that doesn't matter as much i guess but it does matter uh to the viewers is you know how long it went it was almost it was four hours right and it had a deciding set tiebreaker um and some amazing rallies all together from both of them and of course it involved a comeback from nadal i think one of just two or three of his comebacks from a set down against djokovic one of three, I would say. The Wimbledon 2007 semifinal being one and the 2014 Roland Garros uh, final being the other. Um, yeah, <clears throat> all of them from 3-6 uh, down, funnily. But yeah, and of, of course, Novak held a bunch of match points as well in that match. And uh, it was definitely a heartbreaking loss for him. But then aside from that, you, if you just were to admire the tennis played by both of them, it was just out of this world. And uh, also not to mention that they did play the finals of both Monte Carlo and Rome. And it was not until 2011 that um, Rome became the final Masters event leading up to Roland Garros. Madrid was the one. And that was also the first season where uh, when Madrid uh, Masters moved to clay. Uh, and that was sort of the lead up to Roland Garros. And in a way, it, it sort of destroyed both of them because they both crashed out before the quarterfinals. Uh, but yeah, that was just an amazing match. 
And I would also say, along with that, the Miami 2011 final. And another match that sort of doesn't uh, get as much recognition would be the 2013 Montreal semifinal. I think they played some spectacular tennis, uh, you know, from the second set onwards until the very end. And of course, they had that spicy moment at the net where Nadal didn't intend to uh, really go, you know, go go for Djokovic, but he did hit him accidentally and even apologized for it. But Novak did not take that too kindly and didn't end up giving him uh, a semi-death glare. But yeah, that, of course, you know, water under the bridge, you know, even by the end of the match itself, I think they hashed it out at the net. Um, what was funny uh, about that match is that at that moment, I think it was Sam Gore, the commentator, he said that there isn't much love lost between the two which was confusing to me because I always thought they got along pretty well. If you said that about Novak and Roger, sure, but not really about Novak and Rafa. I think they had a pretty good rapport at that point. Um, of course, I just completely digressed from the main point, but yeah, that was one. That was an interesting point about that match. And yeah, about the Miami 2011 final, Like I think I must say Novak had no business winning that, uh, considering how well Nadal played and the way the deciding set panned out everything, it looked like the stars were lining for Rafa. He was 15-30 up at 5-6 on Novak serve, up a mini break at 2-1 before he meet, quickly going 2-6 down. Uh, but yeah, that that was only because of, you know, some amazing tennis from Novak in succession uh, that ended, ended up winning him the match. Uh, and the fact that he was able to produce that in such... Uh, sweltering conditions, conditions that have not been favorable to him in the past or to anybody really. It was really humid that day in Miami. Uh, that was obviously a match that will live long in my memory because Novak's uh, streak, you know, in 2011, the unbeaten uh, run from the beginning of that season could have very much ended there at, at the hands of Rafael Nadal. But it turns out that he went unbeaten against Rafa the entire season. It was 6-0. So I think that definitely, I, I really would wonder what would have happened if Rafa did end up winning that match and, you know, end up winning his first ever title in Miami. Yeah, it's quite interesting seeing how significant a lot of these matches ended up being in retrospect. Um, during 2009, um, almost set up what happened in Royal Garros 2009 for Dal being injured and being more vulnerable. Really, Miami 2011, I, I know the state of that match. Um, I haven't actually watched it again in years, um, but it, you're right, Shahiri. It, it kind of was a massive stepping stone for Djokovic in that run that he had and the fact he dominated the Dal that year. Um, the uh, like even Wimbledon 2018, that was the match that sort of put Djokovic on the map as he came back from injury. Um, yeah, it's a lot of these results, and that's possibly what makes this rivalry so great. Is it sends ripples through tennis, whatever the result. Um, it, it had, they always have an impact later on, even though they've maybe played less often in recent years. Um, I wanted to just quickly, before moving on to maybe some more underrated matches, uh, touch on a couple of matches they played in 2013, as well as their Montreal semi-final. Um, I missed US Open 2013, the final they played. That's often 
upped in their hyped matches. I think it's got one of the longest rallies they ever played in it. I think that's what I know it for. Confession, I haven't actually seen that match. I missed it um, and I haven't gone back to watch it yet. I don't know if you guys would recommend me doing that or not. Um, but I um, wouldn't and I have not myself. But yeah, but of course, that's up. Okay, so you think that one might be a bit overrated then, Sherry? Of course, that's my personal bias. I don't think it's overrated, you know, but I, well, in a way, yes. But I mean, I think the significance is sort of overstated in, in a way that people think it's sort of end, the end all, the all of their uh, respective um, records at the US Open. Um, it is overrated as an Adal Djokovic match can be. I guess. Even, sure. even um, the Roland Garros 2022 match, which we probably wouldn't necessarily put in the, the most, the S tier of their clashes, of their individual, within the context of that rivalry, yeah. still being talked about as being one of the best matches of the entire year. Yeah, um, I guess that's just the standard they set. You know, if you were to rank all of their 59 matches i don't i don't know if it would make the top 20 but the fact that they were able to produce that level you know even at this age well past their primes at least on paper that just goes to say you know i i don't know how many times like we've repeated this but just goes to say how uh significant this rivalry is to tennis and how much of a void uh is going to exist once these two or even one of these two depart from the game, which obviously would be a, a great disappointment. But yeah, or, or I mean, you could have people painting it the other way around and say that I guess the quality of tennis is degraded so much that a match like this would be, you know, one of the best Grand Slam matches of the year. But I wouldn't put it that way necessarily. Uh, of course not. But yeah. I'll push back on that and I I might be biased because I was there and it's uh so it's a very good memory for me but I think like I think that one is underrated actually and um not necessarily because of the kind of match it was but because of the peaks that each of them hit I think for the first set and a half Nadal winning nine of the first 11 games I think that was as good as he can play now um I think Djokovic after that winning the second set breaking Nadal three times out of four games um just absolutely redlining with his return and his forehand. I think that's kind of the best he can play right now. Um, and it was just insane to me that they could do that. I mean, the second set was 6-4 in 88 minutes. Like, I, the thing, I, I mean, I tweeted this pretty recently. Like, imagine if that set goes to a tiebreak. That set probably would have been two hours. That's insane. They're, like, and they're so far past their primes. And, you know, the the last two sets were not that great. I will freely admit that. But, I like... I think overall, as a match, it was pretty compelling still. Well, I was completely hooked by it. Um, it was well worth me staying up to 1am to watch it. It was great. I, uh, and yeah, I, okay, there were points where I was like, oh, the doll feels a bit more in control, particularly sets one and three. Um, the way Djokovic came back to the ten, level of tennis that got played between the two of them was incredible in, in that run in, in this year. And actually, for the set four, Nadal's comeback was incredible. That, that was an incredible moment to watch. Um, and I, I thought we were going five. I thought we were going to have um, another five-set match between those two and a second one at Roland Garros. Um, but yeah, Nadal, Nadal dug his heels in and refused to allow it. And um, that, I think, that was 
one of the most clutch Lazar moments I think to go down go down in his career. Uh, so, I must say that from a very objective viewpoint, that was full circle for Nadal because that match lasted at four hours twelve minutes. Their semi-final clash from last year lasted four hours and eleven minutes. It involved the tiebreaker that decided the match pretty much. So did this one, and you could say that. I mean, of course, both of those sets were won by saving set points, at least one set point. And you could you could have made a case for the match being completely different if that, uh, obviously, if the result were to be flipped in those sets. And for Nadal, of course, you know, winning, it's sort of, for him, uh, reestablishing uh, how good he is on that court, on the surface, and the fact that he is still... Uh, the best ever player on the surface and you know that's not going to change just um, and he also made it a point uh, to show that the 2021 semifinal was in a way a freak incident and that's not going to be how their matches are going to pan out um, you know nine out of ten times Um, and you know it takes that kind of a level from Djokovic to beat him uh, so yeah, I should add this, putting my feelings aside, of course, I just, you know, I'm, I'm still probably in, infuriated that the match ended in four, four sets and the way it did in the tiebreaker with Novak quickly falling one five down, uh, considering how good, uh, you know, he is playing tiebreakers, especially really crucial ones. Uh, one of them being their third set in the semifinal clash last year, but yeah, that was definitely a full circle moment for Nadal and his fans. And, you know, I think uh, uh, we really shouldn't have expected anything less uh, as far as what he brought to the match is concerned because he was obviously going to watch uh, last year's semifinal and going to uh, take notes as to what he should be doing better and what what he shouldn't be, what he should avoid and what he shouldn't be doing at all. Uh, and I'm... I can't really say I'm looking forward to another clash of theirs at Roland Garros, uh, honestly speaking, but it would be fascinating to see what kind of narrative uh, we would have going into that uh, clash because as we did see, sort of a seesaw at this moment for them at Roland Garros because it's either, uh, um, you know, Novak is the huge favorite or, you know, the years uh, after Nadal beats him, we usually just pick Nadal because, you know, we say, okay, yeah, what, what happened in 2015 is not going to happen again. What happened in 2021 is not going to happen again. But if anybody can beat him three times at Roland Garros, I think it's Novak Djokovic. So maybe just for that. But for my health, for my heart, it's not good. I, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I was also frustrated I didn't go five. I would have loved it to go five. Um, I think it was it was definitely due that uh, for different reasons to you. Um, I I want them to clash again at Roland Garros, and I think they will. I think the way talking about the current state of tennis for me, um, the way it's kind of going is it's very much Djokovic versus Nadal at Roland Garros, followed by Sitsipas and Rude. Um, those being in the mix, if one if those two don't quite make it. Um, Owen, do you have any other thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, I 
I think it's kind of crazy that they've now played 10 times at Roland Garros and uh, and that Djokovic accounts for uh, two of Nadal's three total losses at that tournament. Uh, I think those are two pretty hilarious stats. I, I would also love to see them play there again. I mean, I think there's there's kind of a skew with how many times they've played at that tournament compared to the other ones. But like, hey, it produces great matches, so I'm not going to complain. Um, I think uh, another five-setter between them would be great. I don't know if that's too much to hope for. On the five-setter, I wanted to get your um, your view because there is one other five-set match that they have played um, that we haven't discussed, which is the Roland Garros 2013 semi-final. It's not gone down in history as one of their best. I remember watching it at the time and absolutely loving it. Um, and I thought it was a great drama. It's probably one of the most dramatic matches for non-tennis, like not falling court reasons. Because of the, um, the conditions, there was the net touch instance in the fifth set. Djokovic could have won that match very easily. Um, not easily, but you know what I mean? Like, I thought he was going to win it, and then things kind of turned against him. Uh, and the history could have played out very differently. But again, Nadal still undefeated in, in a when it goes to five at Roland Garros. Um, so, uh, but I wanted to understand sort of. What do you guys think of that match? Because I remember thoroughly enjoying it, even if maybe if you compare it to others, it maybe isn't the best. I still think it was a pretty good watch. Uh, I, I want to hear Hanya's thoughts on this first. I really don't have anything uh, to add about the, the specific Djokovic-Nadal matches uh, because as a Federer fan, like I'm going to be tr- like very like from the, give you from the outside perspective rather than more analytical. And as a Federer fan, I wasn't really invested in the Djokovic-Nadal matches as much. Um, I watched them just to, to, to get like a break from being too intense about Federer matches. But like my favorite, as I told you, was the, the Australia Open final. And that's pretty much the only one that resonates in my memory. That's really all I have to add. That's fair. And I I think it's a good perspective to have as well as like someone who wasn't totally absorbed by the rivalry. Um, Nick, I can, I can give you my thoughts on that match. I, I have to say, I think as quality of tennis goes, I think it's pretty overrated. Um, I think the fifth set was awesome. Um, But that said, like, I think they both made some pretty massive mistakes. I think Nadal should have been more clinical early on. He was a set and a breakup. I think Djokovic could have really could have done better tactically. He missed a bunch of backhands. Um, I, I think he I think he made like twenty seven backhand on force errors in that match, which is high for him. He played an atrocity of the third set, um, and I. But I, I will say the fifth set, I think, is up there with the best sets that they've played. Um, but yeah, overall, as a match, it just didn't really... It just didn't really feel the same as some of their better ones. Like, I think 2012 Australia, even though that took three sets to really get good, that one felt better. Wimbledon 2018 felt much better. Uh, this one, I don't know. It um, it definitely had its moments. But yeah, I, I felt like they both should have done better. Um, or they both definitely could have played better. Yeah, I I do agree without sounding biased that that match was quite overrated. Uh, of course, for me, it's uh, not as much since 
last year's semifinal result. But I just wonder what would have happened if Novak put that smash away like a normal tennis player rather than performing all sorts of antiques and like going out of his way to lose that point. And I think that really, <laughs> that turned uh, that set on its head because Novak had Nadal by the tail, I would say. Granted, he would have probably gotten nervous when he was, if he had he been uh, serving at 5-4 for the match and virtually for the championships because uh, he was definitely beating one of Songa or Ferrer, who were the other semifinalists. Um, but yeah, I think it's kind of insane that, you know, that happened. And that was the way for the set to just completely turn around because I think Nadal played one bad game uh, which is the opening game of the first set and coupled with Novak just having the momentum because Nadal served for the match in the fourth set, 6-5 up, and Djokovic breaks back and plays a really good tiebreaker to push it to a fifth and he's just riding that wave of momentum all the way up to 4-2 four, four um, in the fifth set and he knows that Nadal is not really far away. He's breathing down his neck uh, even though he's a breakup in the fifth, Nadal just you know playing, firing some forehand down the line winners for fun. Uh, that is something he tends to do just to reassure that he's not going anywhere, and that kind of worked. And it what what is impressive is that the match did go all the way to um, nine seven in the fifth, rather than just ending at say 6-4 or 7-5, they, they were still neck and neck. But that was just uh, a disaster of a final game to play from Novak to end that match. And yeah, you know, it, it had its moments, like Owen said. But I think the only reason it's talked as much is, you know, just the significance of how close Nadal came to, uh, you know, losing a rolling or a semifinal. And what people would like to say a good Nadal losing on Philippe Chatrier um, because that was, that was an amazing version of Rafa, I think, because uh, he won Madrid and Rome, only Novak stopped him in Monte Carlo. He did win a couple of those uh, lead-up tournaments in South America on clay before Indian Wells, which he won. So I would say he was in some really red-hot form going into Roland Garros overall. Uh, I, I, I envision Novak winning plainly because of the way he snapped a streak in Monte Carlo. Uh, was it uh, six titles or seven titles in a row? I'm not really sure exactly, but the way he snapped it and that, that kind of performance, that gave me a lot of hope in such a topsy-turvy season otherwise for him, losing in weird fashion to Del Potro at Indian Wells from a breakup in the third, losing to Tommy Haas in Miami. Uh, so, yeah, I think... You know that that uh, I'm glad that um, lost it didn't really break Novak completely. It did have an effect for sure in their Mon Montreal and U.S. Open clashes, where you could see that Nadal is the one who has the upper hand mentally. But the way Novak just turned the tide from there, not completely in his favor, of course, but you know at least uh, assuring that he is. Um, uh, you know, he's definitely going to have the mental edge in a lot of the matches that they were going to play after that. I think that was just amazing from him. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, and having the mental edge in a rivalry is critical. We've seen that in other kind of big tennis rivalries, which we'll probably talk about on other 
podcasts. Um, before we kind of move on to sort of the final section, I just wanted to get maybe like some more maybe underrated matches that you think are very good. Obviously, we've talked about an overrated one, um, particularly from that 2013 period. And Shahiri, you met, you brought up Montreal 2013 and as I said, Miami 2011. There's matches that aren't being talked about as much. Miami 2011 is in the picture, but it does get overshadowed. Um, when you've brought up Roland Garros from 2022 this year. Um, are there any others that you would like to na name as like as an underrated clash between the two? I've got one. I'm going to wait and hear what you guys think. I, I would throw out uh, Hamburg 2008. I think I, I'm kind of happy to say that the rivalry is in a place now where I don't think there are that many underrated matches because I think people are paying more attention to it. But Hamburg 2008 was just an insane match. It had one lull late in the third set. Djokovic kind of having a physical dip, but they played such manic points. That was kind of Nadal at the peak of his defense. And so he was getting everything. And back then, Djokovic against Nadal on clay would just redline and bash the ball as hard as he could. And he didn't win, but he did a great job of it in this match. So he hit some brutal forehand winners. He was also defending pretty well. Um, it was a weird scoreline. It was a 7-5-2-6-6-2 for Nadal. But I felt like the 6-2 sets were more because one player went into god mode and less because the other player had a dip. Um, you know, Djokovic didn't do a great job of taking break points in that match, but there's a 25-minute highlight video of this match on YouTube, Tennis TV. Um, if you haven't seen it, take take half an hour and watch it. Um, your mind will be blown. It's great. It's not one of their more talked about matches. I think besides Madrid 2009, it's probably as good as any best of three match they've played. Um, although Miami 2011 is probably a bit better as well. Yeah, I mean, I did mention a couple as Miami 2011 and Montreal 2013. Uh, I should also mention Rome 2014. Uh, where Novak came from a set down to beat Rafa in the final. It was 4-6-6-3-6-3, but I think from the second set onwards, you 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 know, uh, you wouldn't be fault to think that Novak just completely dominated proceedings from there. Uh, and it didn't, didn't really seem like Rafa was a setup, much like their Indian Wells 2011 final, if you were to say. And one thing that's interesting for me is that until that Indian Wells 2011 match, Novak beat Rafa seven times, all seven times in straight sets. And whenever the match went into a deciding set or whenever they played a final, it would always be Rafa who won. So I think in, in a way, that match was in you know a huge turning point. Um, I think Rafa was 5-0 uh, against him in finals up until that point, if I'm not wrong. So yeah, the way and obviously he went a set up. Novak played, you know, pretty excellent against Federer in the semis, and that was obviously the first time he beat him three times in a row as well. Uh, so yeah, in many ways, Indian Wells 2011, you know, in for, for Djokovic, I should say a very underrated triumph because one of the few titles won by anybody, or especially Novak, where he beat Federer and Nadal in succession. Uh, and the fact that he managed to turn, finally turn the tide. And it was not really a given uh, that, you know, one player would win, considering the circumstances. Oh, okay, it goes to a deciding set. Novak has never beaten Rafa in a deciding set. That changed. Novak never beat Rafa in a final. That changed as well. Shortly after in Madrid, 
he did so on clay and he had lost to him nine times before on clay, which, yeah. So, you know, again, Rome 2014 in a way sort of broke that mold as well because there was one of only two uh, wins for Novak against Rafa from a set down on clay. Uh, the other one, of course, being the famous win at Roland Garros last year in the semis. And I also should maybe mention uh, if I were to pick one from before 20, 2011, I should say the 2010 US Open final for sure, uh, especially the second set. Uh, some epic rallies from both. And it's a pity that it sort of ended the way it did, very much like the 2013 and the 2011 finals also, if you were to uh, put it that way, that the fourth set was sort of one-way traffic for the winner. And yeah, that's basically all I have to say. Yeah, it, good choices. And like, it, again, goes back to what we were saying earlier about this rivalry has got some really good matches, even if maybe they've got some set that are a bit more one-sided than others. Um, I'm going to throw a real wild card out there talking of one-sided sets, Roland Garros 2020. Um, I actually think that that one was, um, I know, Shrihiri, you won't like this choice, um, but I, I, that was the best six-love set I've ever seen. Like, that was about 40 minutes. Like, every game in that was a battle. It was not a straightforward set. If things had fallen differently, that set could have been two all at, at the same time, or three all. Um, and uh, Djokovic, the, uh, the second set I think was a bit more straightforward, but then even Djokovic was still in the match. Like that third set was tight and could have gone for, but it was a, ta- I think that match is often a testament of Nadal showing his play court prowess against the best Djokovic could throw him. A bit like RG 2022, that maybe found a little bit of another gear in 2020 and in 2020. But yeah, I think I just remember it for thinking, that scoreline looks way more one-sided than it actually felt watching the map. So I'll throw that one out there as kind of a crazy point. That's an interesting point. And I cannot disagree because that was a really good set for a six-love scoreline because I think every, pretty much every game went to Deuce, if I'm not mistaken. And Novak, of course, 40-15 up in the very first game before Rafa broke him. Uh, even Rafa's service game, if I think went to Deuce and even the Love 4 game, they played a really good game. And when, you know, Novak was throwing so many Hail Mary forehands at Rafa, I knew he is he's toast because this version of Nadal was in no mood to have any sort of letdown or any period. Like, I mean, it goes back to what I mentioned about what really annoys me about Nadal when he plays Djokovic. Especially on that day, I did not see any stanza where He's just going to allow Novak dictate for a bit. We did see that this year uh, towards the, from the uh, mid-second set towards the end of it, from love three to six, four, when Novak was just completely redlining, belting forehands as quick as he probably ever could. But that day I knew, yeah, this is, there's no other outcome other than Rafa just completely steamrolling him. Uh, But that That is sort of a segue to another point that I want to bring up. If you were to draw parallels between the two Grand Slam finals that were one-sided, uh, the Australian Open 2019 final, one-sided for Novak. If you were to look at the scoreline, sure, the 2020 RG final looks more one-sided where Novak won one game less than Rafa in 2019. And Novak also got bagel in the first set. But if you actually 
didn't let the stats or just the scoreline alone dictate uh, what you would uh, think about how that match panned out, you would know. And if, obviously, if you watch both of the matches, you would know that the 2019 Australian Open final was actually far more one-sided because Rafa didn't really have a... He had one break point all match, and that was at 4-3 in the third set. And that didn't matter at all because Novak did end up holding and broke the very next game to clinch the championships. Uh, Djokovic and, held at love like seven times in that match. Exactly. It was insane. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, until then, there was just... I mean, there's no, no way for Rafa to like even get his teeth... In, into the match but at, at least you could see Novak trying to redline some shots he was 15-30 on Rafa's serve at 5-4 that was three points away from taking the set very obviously easier said than done but there was no moment like that uh, in the Australian Open final especially that uh, game where Novak breaks back for three all and he asked the crowd to roar more for him typical Novak fashion and he just goes on this uh, goes on the streak, if you were to say, of playing really good tennis, notwithstanding Rafa's level. So, yeah, that's just another point that I wanted to put out regarding the two one-sided Grand Slam finals that they contested. Yeah, I, I don't have much to add to that. Um, I, I think a cool part of the rivalry is that they can play these super competitive matches, but their peak levels are also so high that if one of them doesn't show up on any given day, it's a slaughter. Like those two matches we talked about. I think, you know, I mean, Djokovic has demolished Nadal on hard court quite a bit, like hasn't even given up a set since 2013. Um, and that's because his peak level is just terrifying. Um, so if Nadal doesn't show up, like there's nothing he can do. Um, I'd say the reverse is true on clay, maybe a little less so. I think um, I think Djokovic is still able to challenge Nadal pretty frequently, although he's taken his share of beatings as well. Um, and I and I think that's a cool aspect of it as well. Like they've played fifty nine times. I think pretty much every possible outcome has happened uh, in their matches. That's that's what makes Twyford so great. And um, yeah, it's the level they bring um, to the match. They know the other person the other person is playing they know they need to bring their best and and i've seen them both get very frustrated when they've not been able to do that um maybe they should yeah, sail already but i did want to mention another match that's underrated there was last year's rome final pretty underrated uh great level of tennis from both players until the very end the only regret novak could have would be that forehand miss at two all to go three two up with a break uh, but otherwise, I mean, nobody, everybody expected another beatdown, much like 2019 or even their Roland Garros final from the year before. And also considering how I think for uh, uh, the billionth time, Novak was hard done by the Rome schedule and he ended his semifinal pretty late in the night and had to contest uh, the very next day in less than 24 hours for the title. Um, he played remarkably well, and that's cool. And I think uh, bread sticking Nadal on clay that's just, I mean, amazing stuff from him. Probably one of the best matches he's played on clay where he has not ended up as the winner, I would say, personally. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. Um, yeah, I don't remember that match too well, but it was a good contest, um, from what I do remember. 
Um, going back to, to the high level view of the, um, uh, the arrivalry as a whole. So we've obviously dug into a little bit into each individual match, relived some great, uh, great moments. Um, let's take it a step back again. And um, we, um, and let's talk about the status of this rivalry in tennis. Um, the Dal. Um, it's often, I think, when people talk about rivalries, the first they think about is Nadal and Federer. Um, but I think for those of us who are really into the sport, um, Djokovic and Nadal holds a very special place in our hearts. Um, in a very, it, it's very different. But Shuri, what are your thoughts on it? I think those who know me well, follow me on Twitter, know that this is one of my biggest pet peeves or maybe one of the uh, things that annoy me the most about tennis discourse in general around the big three is that people want to portray Novak as some sort of third wheel between amongst Federer, Nadal and Djokovic, if you were to encapsulate the three greatest men's players of all time. Uh, it's always, be it when you talk about their tennis or be it uh, uh, when you talk about uh, how people receive the players in general. It's like, you know, you. I, I think everybody's seen this phrase repeatedly. He won't be as loved as, and then complete sentence, Federer Nadal or Fedal. And there are people, or you would say, oh, I, and he wonders why uh, he's not as loved as Federer Nadal, which I'm pretty sure he doesn't wonder, but anyway. And there's also the other aspect where when you see uh, casuals or borderline casuals and you, you have... Uh, when I mean borderline casuals, I mean sports presenters who are not really haven't delved much into tennis to like speak in detail about it. But you know, just they uh, they're aware of the landscape in general, and they would always mention Federer Nadal and like, oh, you you take Federer Nadal in tennis, Federer Nadal Serena, Serena from the women's, of course, and always irks me that bit more each time I. I see Djokovic being omitted and you know this this goes back to me watching uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's Star Talk uh, podcast where he has a separate one for sports and he invited Nick Kyrgios onto the show and he did he mentioned oh you you know you uh, you have a pretty good resume you've beaten Federer and Nadal there's no mention of Djokovic and also the fact that Nick did beat him right not you Nick but Nick Kyrgios but uh, yeah, and uh, but yeah, it's just really in a way. I'm like, what, are they intentionally doing it? I, sometimes I can't help but think that uh, because it's like this guy has been there. He's the 21 time Grand Slam champion, so clearly, at least in one way, uh, more successful than Roger Federer. So why is he not even being mentioned, let alone uh, less frequently by people? Um, and, you know, it, it's annoying when the media intentionally goes out of their way to sort of uh, make it seem like it's just Federer and Nadal who are the Mount Rushmore of men's tennis. And there's no mention of Djokovic. And it's like, they don't want to mention Djokovic, but they're like, you you know, you, you have to pardon us because we cannot warm up to Djokovic considering all of his recent controversial stances and controversial events that he's gotten himself into. But yeah, I mean... Sure, but that's just 
I think that doesn't have much to do with tennis, uh, you know, and how great he is as a tennis player. And people, I just think they take too much comfort in sort of discrediting him. And, and even if there is, there is, say, 2021, which he dominated, uh, people are so quick to say that, oh, yeah, his main rivals aren't there. The field is weak. Of course, that's why. And you roll it to 2022, where Rafa, at least for the first half of 2022, has a very similar season at the Grand Slams. Uh, the double career slam and also, you know, sort of uh, rejuvenating himself where Novak, so you wouldn't really, you wouldn't have expected him in 2020 to be one match away from completing the calendar slam in 2021. I don't see too many people saying that about Nadal. Everyone is, the first thing they do is talk about how great he is and how great, you know, know, how blessed we've been to still see guys like Nadal and Federer going at it, Uh, which is, it, it leaves me perplexed, it leaves me confused. And I think that should be the reaction for Novak as well. Yeah, I I feel pretty similarly. Maybe not with the same intensity because I don't, I'm not emotionally invested in Djokovic's results the same way you are, Srihari. Um, but yeah, like some of the combinations of players, like when people mention them, is really puzzling to me. Like, um, I I mean, for the past few years, it's been Nadal and Djokovic, right? Like they're the ones who've shared the last big group of major titles. Um. I think that even goes back to like 2010. Like I think between the two of them, they've won. And I'm going to get the uh, total amount wrong, but I think it was like 36 out of the last 51 or something between the two of them. Like that's massive, but yeah, you still hear Nadal and Federer. Um, You still hear that rivalry talked about. Um, They haven't played in three years. Um, They didn't play that much in the 2010s. Um, Not even close to as much as Djokovic and Nadal did. And I don't know, I like, I don't believe that there is an establishment uh, that is determined to erase Djokovic from tennis history. But, you know, I, I do think that, you know, Nadal and Federer are more popular. And so I do think there's maybe, maybe like a bit of an unconscious effort from certain people to try to make Djokovic seem a little irrelevant, even as he proves to be more relevant than either of them much of the time. Um, and I mean, that's not fair. Um, he's a great player. Um, at the very least, he's at their level. I would personally argue he's above it. Um, I think he's the best ever. Um, I've said that before. I'll probably continue to say it. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's unfortunate when he gets dismissed because it's like you're dismissing him because of your personal views on him and not because of the tennis he's played. Um, and I, I think that's unfortunate. Anya, um, as a Fado Federer fan, uh, what's your perspective on the Djokovic Nadal or Djokovic Federer? Djokovic Nadal rivalry, I got it right the first time. Edit this out. Um, uh, Djokovic and Nadal rivalry um, and its status and maybe how it's seen in comparison. Because obviously, sure, he's got very strong views on it because he's got um, a dog in the race, as it were. Um, he's he's backing someone in it, um, and you know, Owen's obviously looking at it from a sort of an overall, maybe a tennis perspective. As someone who's maybe got a little bit more of their heart with Federer and his place in tennis history, what are your thoughts? Right. Um, well, first, I like tentatively, I want to say that 
Djokovic will probably be regarded as the greatest tennis player of all time. Uh, tentative of how Nadal does in the coming years. But regarding the, the Federer-Nadal and Djokovic-Nadal uh, debate, I think you will get the answer for that when you look at the age groups of people debating on both sides. Because the, the Federer-Nadal group, like you and I, Nick, we watched them go between 2003 and 2010, and that adds to Owen's point, which is they haven't been showing up since 2010. And for these 10 years, it was all the passion and emotion of only those two players moving each other to the best. And we had no joke, which was not even in, in, in the debate at that point. And I think this is the issue. It's because millennials or us, we feel that the, the, the new ones are trying to more or less cancel the experience we had during this decade and just erase all that passion. When I think it's important to acknowledge that Nadal and Federer both regard each other as their greatest, each owns rivals. And Djokovic regards Nadal as his greatest rival, which is also correct because each one picks the rival that more or less pushes pushes him to the best. Nadal pushed Djokovic to his best best and both Feder and Nadal pushed pushed each other to their best. So I think like both debates they have merit. Uh Feder and Nadal is much more romanticized than than the other rivalry and it's it's understandable. But I think that each one served its own purpose in its time frame, uh, and each one is equally important. And they all did, like, they they all had a great impact in building each other's career. And and you cannot like disregard one or the other. They are all equally important. I'm not sure if I rambled too much or made any sense. You made a great point. Um, okay. I think it- I think you made a great point. Um, and I think, you know, we're kind of basing this on the comparative to maybe the frustrations and how the rivalries were seen, maybe more from a sort of a casual tennis fan's perspective. I think you make a very good point about the age group thing, because you're right. For, for me, and probably for, like, three years, probably a little bit younger at the time, but saw the transition happen, was Djokovic came on the scene a little bit later in comparison, in terms of he started becoming a big name at um, I, I think like the dynamic is confusing because for, for a while it was the big two and then suddenly Djokovic came and then it was the big three and then Federer couldn't keep up with those two so it was more or less Djokovic and Nadal like fighting yeah. each other on being like the best player of all time so I think it's unfair to put Federer in that comparison because he was already done by the time these two were were like completing the rivalry. Done, but not completely out of it. Like Federer spoiled exactly. Djokovic and Nadal party. His dominance. Djokovic had spoiled the Federer and the Dahl party towards the end of the two thousands. Um, I mean, at least I think his another, dominance. Yeah. Yeah, another thing that possibly elevates the Federer and the Dahl rivalry for some people is that two thousand and eight Wimbledon final, which has got that legendary status that. Whilst we've talked about some absolutely mega matches um, between Djokovic and Nadal, Wimbledon 2018, 10 years later, Open mm-hmm. 2012 has gone down among tennis fans as one of the greatest of all time. I think Wimbledon 2018 semi final will 
I think Wimbledon 2018 is half fighting a semi rather than a final. Um, but and there's also, but I think your point about the rivalries serving different points is also great because Federer and the Dahl is about a, a massive contrast in style. Um, mm-hmm. And that's one reason why it's interesting, whereas Djokovic and the Dahl is very much more about very similar approaches to playing tennis. Um, Federer Djokovic is very, it is kind of more like the Djokovic. It, Federer and Nadal rivalry um, in that sort of framing, but comes out it's, slightly differently. There... And also, peak Djokovic didn't happen at peak Federer, whereas we saw Nadal peaking, Federer was ending his peak. Um, I think I think they're different in essence because, like with with Federer and Nadal, everyone, each one of them had their own like um, area of like expertise that the other didn't dare approach. Like, but with Djokovic, his pretty much dominant on each and every surface he's the complete player and he managed to meet both at their best surfaces and I think like I agree like the Wimbledon 2008 final was it like Federer was beaten on grass that that was that that was like the first wake-up call that he's not a god like we need to 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 accept the fact that there are other players who are gonna beat them beat him so yeah I mean I think it's unfair that Djokovic is undershadowed um I understand why but I I just think it's unfair um I think they're all equally important in each other career careers here's the conclusion we're coming to yeah I think that's a pretty good note to end on Hanya. That, yeah, I don't know if I definitely. Can put that there's not, not much I can uh, disagree with. You know, I think uh, Hanya perfectly encapsulated both sides there. Uh, in a way, you know, it could also make someone like me look at the other perspective. You know, the fans who grew up watching Federer and Nadal pretty much every Sunday uh, competing for these big titles. And, you know, the uh, creme de la creme would be the Wimbledon 2008 final where, you know, you know, widely regarded as the greatest ever match, you know, played. And yeah, just everything about that match. And, uh, you know, the way Federer was upstaged and, you know, five titles in a row, his best surface, and having beaten Nadal the previous two uh, Wimbledon finals. And, you know, it was until then the narrative was such that well, yes, that, and that's how I got into tennis myself, is that, yeah, well, Federer, Nadal beats Federer on clay and Federer beats Nadal on grass. But Nadal did something to Federer that Federer couldn't do to Nadal, which is beat him on his best surface and his best slam. So, Great. yes, that definitely adds to why that's regarded, that, that is kept held at such high regard, that match and the rivalry itself, and how much respect and camaraderie these two have amongst one another, which you won't necessarily see in any other sport amongst two of the biggest rivals, uh, which they were for a very long time, which, you know, I won't let decent recency bias, uh, uh, you know, change that fact or like make me think otherwise. So, yes, that's definitely a great note to end on. Uh, of course, we started with Novak and Rafa, but, you know, we just cannot talk about these two players without mentioning Roger Federer, who's equally as important uh, to I told you team. I'm here to do one thing, which is to annoy you and talk about Feather, which is basically what I did. Yeah, mission accomplished. Yeah. Things, but, yeah. 
Yeah, so on that note, I think we can end a really fruitful discussion in the form of a podcast uh, with a few of my favorite mutuals, I would say, on Twitter. Uh, it was great to have Owen, uh, a longtime mutual of mine, uh, on this podcast and a fellow admirer of uh, the Djokovic and Nadal rivalry. It was great to have Hania as well for her perspective as a Federer fan on this uh, epic rivalry. And of course, my fellow co-host, Nick, who's also a Federer fan, who I'm glad he didn't feel left out in that regard. So on that note, we end and hope to catch you all very soon for the next episode.